0: Father, we are thankful to be here. We're thankful for your word, and we ask now that you would open our hearts and our eyes and our ears, that we might hear what you have to say to us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in us to change us, to mold us, and to shape us into the image of Jesus. Amazing as that might be of a goal, that is your goal. So we pray that you would be about your work this morning. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we continue in Daniel today, we're actually going to look at a story that's uh, maybe familiar to a lot of you. It's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. In fact, my guess is even if you're not super familiar with the Bible, you're probably familiar with this story. It's a pretty famous one. Uh, And we are going to see these men, and they're going to show us a lot of what it means to worship the Lord, but I want you to pay really close attention to the most important figure in this story. It's the fourth man. Who is that? You'll have to wait and see. I want you to listen as we open Daniel chapter 3 together to verse 1. This is what we read. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth Six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. When we open up chapter 3, we see that King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is setting up an enormous golden statue. He has built for himself and all of the people a statue. And it's not just any statue, it is a golden statue. And it's not just any golden statue, it's a really, really big golden statue. Uh, we read that it's uh, 60 cubits high. Uh, If you just look up at this basketball goal, that's 10 feet high. A cubit's about 18 inches, so that's 90 feet tall, give or take. The basketball goal is 10 feet tall, so nine times the height of this basketball goal is the height of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar builds. Just for reference, uh, the Comal County Courthouse is 83 feet tall at its highest point. So pretty much the tallest thing in all of New Braunfels would have been this statue that Nebuchadnezzar built. And he sits it in a very strategic place, out in the middle of a plain. So get the picture here. We've got a 90-foot tall golden statue sitting in the middle of a plain with no trees or anything to shade it, nothing to distract it. You can see it glistening in the sun for miles and miles around, and there's plenty of room all around it for the people to come and gather and bow. You may wonder, what's, what's the statue of? What is it? Well, we're not actually told in this passage, but we are given actually a couple of clues. If you trace back into chapter 2, maybe you remember this from a few weeks ago, Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream that Daniel interpreted for him. And in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he sees, get this, a really big statue. And the head of this really big statue is made of, you guessed it, gold. But interestingly enough, the rest of the body and the legs and the feet of the statue is made of other stuff. There's iron, and there's bronze, and there's clay even mixed in in the feet. And what Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar when he interprets the dream is he says, okay, this is what it means. The head of the statue is you. It's your kingdom. It's Babylon, glorious and shining the head of gold of this enormous, big, giant image. But guess what? The rest of the body represents the kingdoms that will come after you the kingdoms that will replace you, the kingdoms that will come when your kingdom is long gone. And by the way, there is this stone that grows into a mountain that crushes all of them, and it's the kingdom of God. Now, if you're Nebuchadnezzar, and you have a dream of a big statue with a head made of gold, and you've been told that that head is your kingdom, maybe you can imagine kind of what the next move would be. I'll show you, scary dream, I'll build myself just such a statue, but the head won't only be of gold, the whole body will be of gold. You see kind of what he's doing? He's saying, listen, my kingdom is not going to be overtaken by any other kingdom. Not Greece, not Rome, not Persia, not the kingdom of God. My kingdom is going to stand and it is going to stand forever And it's going to be big and beautiful and bold. And by the way, remember those feet in the dream? They were actually a mixture of iron and clay. Not a very good footing if your feet are made of clay. So here's Nebuchadnezzar proclaiming to everybody in the nation, and maybe even most specifically to his own insecurities, you're not going to see the feet of clay. You're just going to see the gold. What's the best way you can think of to hide all of your own weaknesses, to hide all of your own frailty, to hide all of your limitations, to hide all of your pain? It's to build up even greater and greater your great strengths, isn't it? Don't look at the feet of clay, just look at the gold. Boy, don't we just have the same tendency to do this? to puff ourselves up so much, to project something to the world that we want them to see so that they might see our might and our glory, but they're not going to look at the feet of clay. Don't pay any attention to the weakness, right? It's the Wizard of Oz syndrome. Don't, don't look behind the curtain because behind the curtain is just a little weak old man. Feel the projections. I, I hate to keep harping on this, but is there a place in our society where we can build a really big and beautiful image of ourselves that we want other people to like and to follow. I mean, social media is just teed up for this. (laughs) The easiest way in the world to build a projection of ourselves that is exactly what we want everybody to see so that they won't ever see any of our weaknesses. They won't ever see any of our brokenness. Now, of course, there's lots of other ways to do this too. To present ourselves uh, to the world around us, to our friends, even to our spouses, as if there's nothing really wrong with us at all. I want you to see the good things. I don't want you to see the feet of clay, because that's, that's me exposing my pain, and that's going to hurt. I'm so prone to this myself, self-protecting, self-projecting, self-aggrandizing, self-fill-in-the-blank, right? More me equals less of my weakness. More of my greatness equals less of my limits. More of the shininess equals less of the really ugly stuff that you can see. And by the way, if you all could just kind of gather around and bow and tell me how wonderful I am, that would make me feel really good too. Friends, our hearts are drawn to that. They're prone to it. We love to build up things to worship. And oftentimes, you know what we build up the biggest me. But it actually gets worse in this passage because we see that not only are we prone to idolatry, remember we defined idolatry as the the movement of our hearts towards something that is not the Lord, and not only are we prone to that, but guess what? We're actually conditioned to respond to it. I want to keep reading in verse 3. Follow along with me if you've got a Bible, or you can follow along on the screen, or verse 2, excuse me. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, O nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every other kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people's heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Uh, if you're if you're an English teacher and and somebody brings you this this little portion uh, as an essay, uh, the red pen is going to take out about 80% of those words because they're all repeated. Did you, did you feel that? Did you hear the rhythm and the repetition there? The satraps, the governors, the officials, blah, 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 the harp, the lyre, the trigon, whatever that is, the bagpipes, blah, 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 repeated over and over and over. Why is that? Why do we get so much repetition in this passage? Well, run, one reason is that uh, in the ancient world, you know, this was written to be able to hear rather than to read. And so that if you are hearing something, you want to hear more repetition because it sinks in more. But I think there's an even greater purpose here. There's a conditioning going on. It's a Pavlovian kind of response that's called for. When we hear these things that the king does, the people always respond to them. Did you hear that? The king gathered the satraps, the governors, the officials, whatever, and then the next thing we hear is that they all came running. The king said, whenever you hear all of these instruments and all of this music, what are you to do? Fall down and worship. And so what do we hear? Whenever the music was played, they all came and fall, fell down and worshiped. There's a Pavlovian type of response there. They're conditioned to respond. The idol is given, the trigger is kind of given, and the response is called for. I have, I have a Pavlovian type of response uh, to the ads I see on television and on my computer where it triggers in me just this idea of like, oh, that, that's all the stuff I need to make me happy. I guess if my life is going to be full and happy, then here's all the stuff I have to have. It's this like I hear all of those instruments play and I I'm immediately want to respond to it. I feel my heart drawn to it. I don't even have to see the ad anymore. It just kind of runs in the background of my head. And the response keeps getting triggered and triggered. Now, maybe that's, I just need a better car. Or maybe that's, I just need a more fulfilling sex life with my spouse. Or maybe that's, I just need a more fulfilling emotional life with my spouse. Or maybe that's, you know, uh, I just really need my kids to finally fit into that, you know, image that I've been trying to shoehorn them into for the last five or six years. What are the things that we feel like in our lives we have to have in order for us to be happy, in order for us to be full, in order for us to be fulfilled? And what are the triggers that we are responding to immediately that make us drawn to those things like we are running down to fall before this big golden image and worship it? Our hearts are not only drawn so often to created things rather than the creator. But we are so conditioned by the society around us, by the state of our hearts and the state of our world, to come and immediately when that trigger is triggered, to come and to fall down and worship. Our hearts are drawn to idols. We are conditioned to respond to them. And then just in case uh, you were thinking things might get better, not yet. They actually get worse because when we don't respond to those idols there are some actually some bad consequences that can happen to us let me keep reading in this passage for us reading in verse starting in verse 8 now therefore at the time certain chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the jews they declared to king nebuchadnezzar "O king live forever You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, every kind of music, there's that phrase again, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is this true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the bagpipe, the lyre, the trion, the harp, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Friends, the the honest truth that we have to hold in our hearts is that uh, there's always a consequence for turning away from idolatry. turning away from the idolatry of our hearts and of our culture is usually going to bring us some sort of pain i don 't know if you 've heard the comedian Brian Regan who has bit on the word pressure you know he says that pressure is the word uh, that that doctors use you know when um and dentists and when they 're about to inflict you know horrific pain on you they 'll say something like uh you're about to experience a little bit of pressure. You know, as I, as I put this 12-inch needle into your face, you're going to feel a little bit of pressure. Pressure is the doctor word for the worst pain you've ever experienced in your life. Our world is filled with pressure on us. When we decide to turn away from those idols of our hearts and of our culture and turn to the one true God, we are going to experience pressure. We're going to feel it. The consequences for these men in Scripture was a pretty horrific and scary death. We usually don't burn Christians in New Braunfels these days, but we still have that pressure around us. We still can experience the pain and the suffering, the loss that comes from turning away from the idols of our culture. You know, when, when, uh, when we find those who turn to Christ, when they're converted out of cults like Jehovah's Witnesses, they are oftentimes shunned by their families. And oftentimes, uh, those folks will never see or have contact with their families again. It's very, very sad. And maybe you've experienced something, you know, like that on that sort of scale. Maybe, maybe you've experienced that kind of persecution and that kind of loss. But probably more than likely, you've experienced the, the little losses that we go through all the time. You're at a party, and somebody says, can I get you a drink? And you say, I'm actually taking a break from alcohol this month. Awkward. Very long, silent pause. What, what, what do I do with that guy? Or somebody starts to gossip in your group of friends, and you immediately stop and just refuse to engage in it. I mean, there's a conversation killer. What are your friends going to think about that person? who not only has stopped the conversation but has also, you know, just kind of made everybody else feel the weight of it? Or refusing to laugh at that inappropriate or racist joke? What kind of condemnation socially, even just what kind of stares and looks is that going to give us and can we handle it? Are we out now? Is that, is that, is that it for us? Are we kind of displaced from our, our part in society and our world? What's my relationship going to look like with that person going forward? There's loss, right? There's real suffering that goes on when we actually move toward the Lord and away from the idols of our culture. So, if that's the case, if our hearts are actually prone to move toward idols, if we're conditioned even to respond to them, And if the stakes for turning away are so high, if there is pain and loss and suffering that actually comes from turning away from idols, then then what do we do? Surely, surely God is going to cut us some slack on this one, right? Surely God is going to look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and say, you know what? Like, let's just don't worry about it too much. Stay where you are, work the system play the long game, you know, do, do the things that you're being asked to do so that you can stay in your positions of power, and maybe it'll be better for you in the end, maybe even better for your people in the end. Maybe that's what God says. Maybe God says it's really not that big a deal, right, since the stakes are so high, we'll just kind of cut you some slack on this one. Unfortunately, that's not the case. In fact, let's keep reading to see how it turns out for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And because the king's order was so urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Friends, the very first commandment that God gives his people on Mount Sinai is, you shall not have any other gods other than me. God has always wanted to be exclusive in our hearts. Jesus says this when he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love God with your whole mind, heart, body, and soul. We read in Romans that we are to offer our lives as living sacrifices to God rather than to be conformed to this world that we are to be transformed by him. All throughout the Bible, this is what is proclaimed is that we are to put our full trust and all of our worship before the Lord and before him exclusively and permanently and holistically. There's a beautiful faith that's presented here by these men to turn away from the idolatry of their culture and to turn no matter what the cost actually to the Lord exclusively. but but I want to settle in on that for just a second because I think sometimes we can get the concept of faith very confused because not only are their actions uh, worthy of us looking at, but also their confession. Let Let me just read to you one more time verse 16 or 17. It gets better every time I read it. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known that you, O king, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They are declaring a trust in both God's power and in God's will. Did you pick that up? They are proclaiming their faith in God's power to save, and they are proclaiming their faith and their trust in his sovereign will. What they are saying is, is, can God save us from this trial? Of course he can. He's God. But they're also saying, will God rescue us out of this? We don't know because he's God. And their faith stands firm in both of those things. This is so instructive to us, because because little bits of of bad theology can slip into our heads and our hearts that end up saying, you know what, I'm going to put my faith in God because of what I think he's going to do for me. And so God is good because of what I think he's going to do for me later. And God is worthy of my praise and my adoration and my worship because because of what I think he's going to give me. But that's not what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saying. They're saying he's worthy of our praise and our worship and our devotion because of who he is, because of his character that has been displayed over and over and over. And so we trust 100% completely his ability to rescue, but we also trust 100% completely in his good and sovereign will. And so we are placing ourselves 100% completely in his hands and his hands alone. That is so good for us to hear. Those of us who oftentimes want to work prediction more than promise. Who want to try and figure out how do we work out the ways that God is going to do these things in my life. Friends, we are called simply to put ourselves in his hand. To know that he is good. To know that he is able to know that he is the one who holds us in those hands mightily. Let me just take a little stock of where we are. Our hearts are prone to idols. We're conditioned to respond to them. The stakes are high for turning away. Yet at the same time, we are called to move away from idolatry and toward the Lord exclusively. Does that sound impossible? because it is. (laughs) It is impossible. At least it's impossible alone. But what if we weren't alone? What if we weren't alone in our trials? What if we weren't alone in our struggles? What if we weren't alone in the Christian life? What if we weren't alone in our pain and our suffering? Listen to the wonderful way that this story ends. Picking up now at verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered, they said to the king, true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw that the fire had not had any power over their bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own God. Nebuchadnezzar, whose emotions have twice now been described to us as as rage and anger, turns now to astonishment. Because he looks in the fire and he sees not three men bound up like they had bound them and supposed to be dying, by the way, but four men unbound and very much alive. And the appearance of the fourth was different. Nebuchadnezzar said he looked like a son of the gods. Who's the fourth man? Well, is it the Lord himself? Is it an angel of the Lord sent by God? Is it Jesus before his incarnation come to stand by these men? Honestly, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But one thing is really, really clear. The Lord was with them. Beautiful, isn't it? That God did not stop them from going into the trial, but he did something better. He joined them in it. He came alongside them. He fulfilled that promise that we actually heard Cody read to us from Isaiah before. When you walk through the fire, I'll I'll be with you. You won't be burned. He fulfilled the same ringing promise we've heard all throughout the Old Testament. In Exodus, when God says, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to live among you. And when you get into this land, I'm going to go with you as well. I'm going to dwell there with you. When even he goes with them, uh, as, as Nebuchadnezzar takes parts of the pieces of the temple with them, we see God's presence even going with them in exile. And of course, what do we read in Isaiah when we hear this amazing proclamation of the Messiah, the king who's to come, what does Isaiah call him? Emmanuel. God with us. Friends, God is with us too. When you are in the midst of the most difficult times in your life, when you are struggling to figure out how do I turn my heart away from this thing that is just so engaging to me, when you are lonely, when you are sad, when you have no idea what's coming next, and the hardest thing in the world is to simply put yourself in God's sovereign hands, guess what? He's with you. Jesus said to his disciples, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And you know what's even better? <laughs> Is that when it really counted, instead of going with us, he went for us. Because in the real fire of the cross, <laughs> in the punishment for the sin of the world, Jesus didn't go with us. He went for us. He went instead of us. He went to do for us what we can't do on our own. Let me just ask you, do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that God is not only with you, but for you? That he truly has conquered all of your enemies, and that in between the time where we see that conquering finally fulfilled, that he has promised to be with us? Because if you do believe that, that is the power and the only power for turning away from the idols of our hearts and our world and turning only to God. Let me pray that the Lord would enable us to do that even today. God and Father, how great to be able to proclaim that truth, that you're with us, that you're for us, that you walk beside us, that you go ahead of us, that you hem us sin from behind, that you are with us when it feels like we're most alone, that you are with us when it feels most painful. Lord, let us live by that great truth and the great truth, Lord, that you have gone for us in taking our sin upon your back. And Spirit, change our hearts that we would not bow to the greatness of ourself, for the idols of our culture, but that we would follow you and you alone. We pray all of this in Christ's name, amen.